right on the nail with Chris Wright. Hi, I'm Chris Wright and welcome to Right on the Nail. Each week I'm joined by those in the know to discuss politics, media, sport, business and lots more. This week we have a very stellar lineup for a deep dive episode on the elections following Super Thursday, the polls that took place in England, Scotland and Wales. Joining me today are Philip Collins, former number 10 speechwriter, founder and writer-in-chief of The Draft, eminent political broadcaster and commentator. David Maddox, political editor at the Sunday Express and leader writer for the Daily Express. And Ryan Caperold, journalist, political commentator and panellist on BBC Scotland. It's great to have you all here. Right on the Nail with Chris Wright. Well, first of all, the big news is Hartlepool and the result there where the Conservatives overturned a Labour majority in a seat which has never, ever been anything but Labour. This is really huge news. It's a huge statement. What does it all mean, Phil? Well, it is a historic moment because it shows you that politics is changing before our very eyes. The Labour Party was formed as a method of expressing the material interests of the working class. And it still sees itself in that way, but the electorate doesn't see it in that way anymore. And it's been coming for a long time, and it was hugely accelerated by Brexit. Hartlepool was a 70% Brexit voting place, and the Labour Party is on the wrong side of a cultural argument. In addition to that, the Conservative Party is a highly flexible organisation which changes very rapidly, And the Tories of today are very different, even from the Conservatives of David Cameron's vintage. And they're offering um, bounty and investment to the Northeast that the people there feel they have not had before. And we might come back to that, whether that's true. But for the moment, that is a very difficult cocktail for the Labour Party. And they, they appear to be completely out of touch with that area. And they're losing places which they have always won in. I mean, as you say, in, in, in its current guise, Labour have never lost Hartlepool. They, they lost it in its previous incarnation as the Hartlepools in the, in the uh, late 50s. An old naval attache um, called Commander Ferrans once stood for the Tories in, in Hartlepool. But since uh, the 64 election, it's been solidly Labour and it is no longer. And it's a very big change because it's indicative of a change across lots of parts of the country. And I think it makes it really difficult for the Labour Party to find a route back to power, um, not least because even if the Labour Party were to be able to become the socially liberal party, which was effectively would be to abandon places like Hartlepool, it can't find enough seats in England to win an election that way, unless it's going to make a recovery in Scotland, which looks extremely remote. This result shows that the route back to power in England is really difficult to see for the Labour Party. It looks almost impossible. David, what's your view on it? I think uh, Labour have an existential crisis. A lot of what Phil has said is right. Uh, and I think the problem is that Labour doesn't really know what it is anymore. That hasn't quite filtered through. Uh, essentially, it is now a party of London, I mean, certainly I I saw one statistic back in 2019, which showed that one in four Labour members are in London, and kind of university towns and a bit around Liverpool and things. But, you know, those traditional heartland areas are are falling, and I don't see a way back. I mean, we, 
Digitally Express sells a lot up there. We did a lot of work with a blue collar conservative movement over the last year or two. And it's quite clear that, you know, the, that phrase go woke, go broke is, is kind of resonating a bit in this, uh, in the sense that, you know, Labour is now seen as a kind of not a patriotic party anymore, an anti-patriotic party amongst the people. It's seen as a, a party of identity politics. And it's not really a party of a working class and of aspiration and things like that. And there's this kind of new breed of conservatives who've come out, which, I mean, can be a problem for the Conservative Party going forward, who are very much the, uh, you know, that face of working class aspiration, which uh, is now replacing Labour in most seats. I agree. I'm not sure it's even working class aspiration. It's a bit like in America, where you had this sort of really weird situation where you've got the right wing Republicans, the, the, the establishment Republicans being joined by the working class in, in, the, in the Rust Belt to create what created Trump. You have the same thing here now where the conservative voter is one thing where in middle England and another thing up north. And you can see in a way why they're both voting conservative, but they're both very, very different people. Well, that's, what, that's why I said that the Conservative Party may well have a problem going forward, because it's quite clear that the old establishment conservatism, the conservatives in the South, are a very different beast to these new kind of conservative voters in the North and Midlands in particular. And, and you can see it amongst the MPs. I mean, I think uh, the contrast, uh, Lee Anderson, for example, who won Ashfield off Labour in 2019, former Labour member, an activist, former trade unionist, now considered by Labour MPs as one of the most right-wing conservative MPs, you know, and uh, very much kind of big on the patriotism stuff, very big on, uh, again, on the aspiration stuff, quite uh, authoritarian and hardline on things like crime and uh, immigration, which doesn't play as well with uh, a lot of the kind of more liberal minded conservatives in the south and i mean we'll see with the london results that traditional conservative voters are not coming out in london to vote for them and uh, of course that's related to brexit as well but it's also related to this uh, new this this kind of new brand of conservatism that's kind of emerging in the north and midlands when do we think that we can put Brexit into a cupboard and lock it up. Is it is that ever going to happen? Or is it going to have a, an impact on, on things like this for many, many years to come? I think it's a sort of gateway drug, Brexit. I think it has allowed people to make a shift that they probably never would have envisaged making from Labour through UKIP or the Brexit Party to the Conservative Party. So I think Brexit is still there in the bloodstream in politics at the moment. And I think it is has been the thing which has united those two parts of the Tory coalition that David was just talking about. And I agree, that's a very interesting question about when Brexit fades as an issue, which obviously it will because it's been done, at least it's been done in parliamentary terms, what is there that unites that Conservative coalition, those people in the north of England and the Midlands, with the people in the Tory shires? I am a little bit more pessimistic from a Labour Party point of view than sort of David was sounding, because I think that coalition the Tories have might hold together reasonably well, because I think those two groups of people who are in many respects very different in material economic terms, clearly they're, they're worlds apart, 
But that's the way in which politics used to work once upon a time, that their material differences would one day start to turn up in their political allegiance. However, they do share, broadly speaking, views on crime. They do share views on immigration. They do share views on public services. And they do have a broadly patriotic outlook. On all of which questions, they think the Labour Party is a bit hopeless. So that coalition might hold together reasonably well, better than you might think, which makes me gloomy for the prospects of the Labour Party, because I, I think trying to break it open might be a bit harder than we think. There's one other thing I'd add, though, which is that, that we don't know yet, which is how will this kind of politics work if we do go through very, very difficult economic times? You know, if there's an extended recession, if unemployment grows to quite a heavy uh, toll, will people then think, actually, I've given these Conservatives a go up here and my life hasn't got any better, even though I, they promised me it would. And at some point that starts to then turn up in the politics. But, but that will take some time to unfold. That's not something we're going to see anytime soon. The Brexit debate was more was much more than just about Brexit. It was about giving a a kick up the backside to to basically everybody coming from Westminster, from London. It's like up here things haven't changed and it's all of your faults. And, you know, to some extent, blaming the Labour Party as much as the Conservatives. But as you say, Brexit and, and the Brexit Party offered a way out of that. And that has been a bridge to go from, in theory, left wing to right wing and now to Conservative. But in a way... The Labour voters have never been naturally not conservative with a small C. And, and those issues that you talk about, Phil, they're very important to them. I just wonder, is, is socialism as a concept, is it dead? I think it probably is dead. I mean, it always has to be reinvented for every era, but it probably is. I mean, I think the Labour Party has got to have this argument about what its purpose is now because psychologically the Labour Party is not ready to give up on the idea that it is the party of the, of the least well-off in society. That's what it was formed for, that's why people join the Labour Party, and that's what they want to be. But they're not that at the moment, they're not viewed as that. And there is a possible future for the Labour Party, which some people are urging on it, to be the party of Remain, as it were, to be the party of the socially liberal progressive forces who are mostly metropolitan, and to be that party. And there's a number of reasons why that's very hard for Labour to, to abandon their old socialist objectives and become that. One of which is that it's just psychologically difficult to give up what you've been. But the other is that the electoral mathematics of that are not very good. Because as I say, if you don't get a recovery in Scotland, there aren't enough seats in England and Wales to, to win that way. And people of that kind of cast of mind, there's all people like me, we all live together. We all live very densely packed up. So we're not very efficient from an electoral point of view. We're not spread out amongst the country. We win vast majorities in, in of small numbers of seats. So it doesn't make sense as an electoral strategy uh, as yet. So that leaves the Labour Party struggling to redefine what its traditional offer might look like in a world where they've lost the aspirational working class, as you said earlier, and in which they're on the other side of a cultural divide um, against a, a coalition which is quite stable and against a leader, Boris Johnson, who for all his flaws and for all the things that people don't like about him, is a very effective political campaigner and a very effective political leader. 
And I think the left constantly underestimates Boris Johnson, who is much better than Labour Party people think he is. They always think he's on the verge of crashing and burning. And he's an incredible survivor and he's much better than they think. And it's about time they took him even more seriously than he takes himself because he's formidable and he's hard to beat. It certainly means that any, anyone in the Conservative Party being remotely concerned about some of the aspects of his leadership and, and, and uh, some of the aspects of sleaze that, we, that we've been reading about, if they had any misgivings at all, they're now going to think, mm -mm, no, this guy's a winner for us and so we're going to stick with him. But Ryan, for, is there any solace in Scotland moving forward from uh, the Labour Party standpoint? Because Labour was always such a huge bedrock of support in Scotland for in terms of their electoral position in the, in the UK as a whole. No, I mean, we're, we're certainly here talking about the collapse of the Labour Party in England and the collapse of the Labour Party happened in Scotland over a decade ago now and there's been absolutely no evidence that it's going to emerge at any point in the future. The new leadership of Van Sarwar is a remarkable improvement. It connects well with voters, but there's still... Scotland's politics is so entrenched at the moment. Every single person has their camp, whether it be pro-Indy or pro-Unionist. And then the Scottish Labour Party sit right in the middle. And it's actually not picking up a lot of votes sitting like that. So I, I, I don't see a way forward, even in the general election point of view, where the Labour Party would gain enough MPs to have a notable effect on a Westminster election. And in Scotland, in Scottish MPs, I just don't see it happen. So it looks like uh, the independence uh, situation and your position on that is having the same effect or has had the same effect in Scotland as the Brexit situation has had in, in the UK. In yeah. terms of Brexit, the pandemic has rather overshadowed Brexit as well. We, we did get Brexit done. We have no idea, those in favour of it and those against it, as to whether it's been a good thing or a bad thing, because it has been completely shunted into the sidelines. We have no idea that we read lots of things about where there might be problems and there may be more problems going forward, but they're of no relevance because what's relevant is the pandemic. So Brexit may still be around, but it's not going to be around as a major factor for a few years, presumably. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. I think the pandemic obviously has changed politics completely, uh, at least in the short term. Peter Mandelson was on the radio uh, this morning talking about the defeat in Hartlepool, the former MP for Hartlepool himself. And he made the point, which is a fair one, that COVID has really altered politics and that the, this was a strange by-election because none of the normal questions um, arose at all. And we're in the midst of a successful and good vaccination programme and the government's doing quite well, uh, understandably, because of it. So there is some truth in that. So, however, I wouldn't therefore say that all of the problems the Labour Party has that we've been talking about would therefore go away when politics resumes uh, its normal course, because the normal course was already pretty abnormal. And I think the COVID has, has really boosted the Conservative fortunes in the short term, but there are some big structural questions going on underneath it. And I think it does overwhelm Brexit. And I, I've always thought that Brexit would never quite turn up as a political question uh, in the sense that the Remain side thought it would, because I always felt that the metaphor that was used about Brexit was it was like the country was going off a cliff. But it wasn't like going off a cliff. It was like going down a very long and not very steep slide. 
even if you think the country will decline economically as a result of Brexit, it won't do so quickly. It will do so very slowly and rather imperceptibly. And so it's very unlikely that people are going to notice major changes in their lives which they attribute to Brexit. And even more unlikely, they then think, ah, that was my fault when I voted for Brexit seven years ago. I'll apologise to the nation and, uh, and do better next time. I just don't think that will ever happen. So I don't think Brexit will ever have that moment of redemption that the Remain side always think it would have. I don't think, and I think and that's, that's why I was always in favour, being a Remain voter of, of from day one of accepting the result and thinking, well, sorry, we lost. It's a shame, but there we go. We've got to get on with it now. Do you think the public perceive the Labour Party as being essentially, firstly, a Remain party, and secondly, a party that once the vote had been completed, didn't really accept the result? Yes, I do. I do. And I think it really still matters. I think they do think that. And I think they're right to think it, because that was the Labour Party's view. Um, the, there's another factor, too, as well as Brexit, uh, which is that uh, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn remains a problem for the Labour Party, because people, and this goes back to the point David was making about patriotism, that people are still saying, and I agree with them again, um, how dare you select this man as your leader and offer him up as prime minister? He doesn't like this country. And they're right to say that. The Labour Party offered a disgraceful candidate to be prime minister, a man who is the, abs the opposite of patriotic. And you can't do that and not suffer a consequence. And, no, and it was a huge factor at the last election that re Remainers couldn't, that would have liked to perhaps have voted Labour, especially in, in the southeastern London, the big issue when people when the Conservative Party knocked on the doorstep was simply you can't you can't have Jeremy Corbyn you can't have Jeremy Corbyn, and I think it could well be a long time before the Labour Party gets over that. I think so. I think so. I think you know someone very cleverly called it long Co long Corbyn, and I think the <laughs> the continued impact of that and the Labour Party has. Also, for 10 years or so, has been clashing its own record in government. The Labour Party um, always does this. As soon as it comes out of government, it starts saying how awful it was when it was in government. And it's, it's in a terrible state because it doesn't know what it is anymore. It doesn't know what it wants to offer to people. I, I was speaking to people I know this morning that are very um, Corbynites. And I asked them what they would rather have, the principality of the Corbynism they follow or power, and they said they would rather have principality rather than ever getting back in power again. So I think that is a massive problem within the Corbyn clique, who would probably still do anything to undermine any success that Keir Starmer could potentially have in the future. Can I just say, like, Corbyn's not the only problem here, and I mean, it, it certainly had an effect in 2019, It's to, and, I, and I agree, it's, it's continuing to have an effect, but part of the issue is the similarities between Starmer and Corbyn, not the differences, and the perception of Starmer, if people have a perception of him at all, is that he is, you know, this kind of North London metropolitan elite, and uh, which was very much a kind of argument being made against Labour in the Corbyn years as well, you know, that it was disconnected, but, uh, you know, and this continues through. So uh, whilst Starmer's provided a welcome break, let's say, in some of the aspects of Corbynism, he still continues, his leadership still continues this 
this kind of disconnected image of a Labour Party, I'm afraid. Um, and just kind of getting back to Brexit, Brexit and COVID were not were not disconnected. I mean, we had a, you know, the whole vaccine issue in the EU, in fact, that Labour had tried to get us to join the EU's vaccine programme, which has been a complete catastrophe, uh, was a major issue playing out ahead of these elections. And, uh, you know, and, and rightly or wrongly, it has been a confirmation for those who supported Brexit that Brexit was the right thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, Phil, what's your thoughts on that? Because whether or not we could have we could have ploughed our own furrow with the vaccination process, which I believe we could. The fact is that the perception with the public is that being out of the EU has been a big benefit in terms of that process. Oh, I, oh, I agree. I think people who voted for Brexit did so for you know good reasons from their point of view. And I think that it's unrealistic to suppose many people will change their mind this quickly. They, they won't. And we all look for things that confirm that we were right in the first place. And, and there is plenty of evidence for people who want to confirm their view that it was right to leave the European Union, that it was right to do so. So I, I, I do think that does matter. And I'd also agree with David, too, that I didn't want to suggest that uh, Corbyn was by any means the only problem. I don't think that for a second. I think there are deeper structural problems here for the Labour Party that... Keir Starmer, whilst a huge step forward from Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, as a former, someone who left the Labour Party because of the anti-Semitism, I, I now feel perfectly happy saying I could support the Labour Party again, because I think at least he's a, they're decent again. Uh, but I don't shy away from the fact that that reconnection hasn't even begun to happen yet. And there's there are deeper problems here than, than Jeremy Corbyn. But leadership matters a lot. Leadership, leadership matters a very great deal. And, and you know, it may be that people need something which is in short supply, which is patience, because maybe we just need to give the Conservatives a chance to see if they can do anything significant for places like Hartlepool. And if they can, good luck to them. And if they can't over time, and I suspect they won't because it's difficult, then people will start to look again at the Labour Party. But that's going to take quite a lot of time. But in modern politics, it's so fast that nobody permits any time. So whether Starmer gets long to try and address this, I don't know. But he's going to need some time because it's it's a very serious predicament. The other thing is the Labour Party ultimately has to dance to the tune of its paymasters. And the paymasters are, are always going to be the union. So how can they move away from the socialism idealism whilst they're so dependent on that? They're not. They're not reliant on funds. They're not capable of actually getting um, enough money and funding from elsewhere to be able to, to cut that umbilical cord, are they? No, at the moment they're not. And I think it tells you something quite important, that if people are taking you seriously as a possible party of government, then you find the money flows and you can get money from other sources. Corporate Britain starts to take you seriously and you start to find money coming in. If you're not taken seriously as a viable party of government, then you're reduced, you fall back on your old paymasters, which in the Labour Party's case is the trade unions. And yeah, that is a serious problem because for the first time really in the history of the union movement, the trade unions are moving Labour to the left, not to the right. It's always, it's historically been the case that the trade union leadership was actually quite solidly, pragmatically right-wing in Labour Party terms because they were rooted to the workplace and they were involved in 
in industrial conflicts and they were pragmatic concrete people who were who were not sort of pie in the sky dreamers the current union leadership is very much shifted to the left and that is a that is a problem there's no question about that there's a big fight going on for the leadership of the unite union which hasn't gained a lot of publicity but is worth just keeping an eye on because len mccluskey's standing standing down if one of his appointed uh, successors wins, then, then the status quo carries on and the Labour Party will still be dragged to the left by its uh, union paymasters. But if Gerard Coyne wins, he stood last time and did quite well, but if he were to sneak through and win, that would be a big change in that relationship. So it's just about possible that may change, but for the moment, yes, there's a big problem. But it's the same problem as everything else, that if Keir Starmer could, could change the Labour Party such that it looks as though it might win, then you find the money follows because people think, well, they're worth funding. There's yeah. a real chicken and egg with, with political funding. In, in the same way as it happened with Tony Blair. Yeah. But when I grew up many years ago, young people were very involved with politics. Socialism was, was very idealistic. A lot of people felt that was like the religion that they could really latch on to. Are young people engaged in politics? And if they are engaged in politics, are they engaged in the concept of socialism or are they engaged in other matters like, like environment and, and, and green issues? And, and in general, are the leaders of, of the opposition parties doing enough to engage the interest of young people? Um, well, speaking as a young person in Scotland, I don't really think that it's the interest in politics to do with any core ideological standpoint. I think it's mostly on the basis of the constitutional issue in Scotland, you're either um, very swayed towards independence or unionism, there's not, a, there's not a cry for socialism, there's not a cry for conservatism, it's all based on the constitutional question in Scotland regarding young people. And presumably there'll, there'll be no major solidification of anything in Scotland until that issue is resolved, and, and that may be years for it to happen. I've used this analogy quite a few times. I feel like Scotland's in a political groundhog day situation. Hmm. That we had a vote in 2014 and we haven't moved on a day after that. It just keeps going and going and going. And if another independence referendum sorted it, you never know, but it probably wouldn't. It would probably lead to an MDF 3, an MDF 4, an MDF 5. This issue is just not going to go away anytime soon. Surely if there was another referendum and it was a vote to remain in the union, that might be the end of it for at least a generation. Well, I thought that would be it for the, the last time and then Brexit happened, obviously, and that gave the SNP an excuse to hunt for the second independent referendum. Um, well, it, yes, I mean, it does give the SNP an excuse because Brexit does change things. And, and I suppose in Scotland, the SNP can feel that Scotland could be a viable member of the EU if they were allowed to join the EU. So it has changed things. So, okay, let's accept it's changed things. Let's have another referendum, get it over with. If it's to stay in the union, then that's the end of it and we can move on. Of course it does, but I don't, I, I don't think for one second that if there was another independence vote and something along similar lines of Brexit happened that shift, shifted the political paradigm, that they wouldn't use that as another excuse to have another independence referendum. Well, I can't think what it, what it might be that would be as fundamental as Brexit to be that significant. Well, an SNP majority again at Holyrood, that would be, always be on the cards. Um, 
every single time there's a majority they will claim because it's in the manifesto that we've got a right to an independence referendum. What do we think in the south of England, uh, David and Phil? Uh, uh, I, I, should I, the I, Scots have another referendum? I, my my uh, my previous job was at the Scotsman, actually, as uh, Westminster correspondent. I, I, I still have the scars of the 2014 referendum on my back. It's um, it, it, the most poisonous, bitter political event I've ever covered, and uh, without 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 any doubt at all. Uh, I, I mean, I take the view that uh, at the time it was very clear that it was a once-in-a-generation event. Both sides made that clear. And actually, the whole issue of a potential Brexit, although obviously that vote hadn't happened, was certainly being used by the SNP at the time. So I, I've never been entirely convinced that Brexit happening is a good enough reason to uh, to go back on that result. And... Frankly, it, I mean, it may well be difficult, but I think Boris needs to hold out on that and simply say, sorry, it was a once in a generation event because, you know, in the end, the, the kind of integrity of the nation state and things are fundamental going forward. You, you can't have a kind of perpetual situation that Ryan has, I think, very eloquently described there of uh, part of the, uh, the, the, the nation state of Britain, if you like breaking away all the time. And and certainly, you know, if, if it was in Ref 2 and, you know, the yes vote lost again, they would certainly be looking for another excuse for Ref 3. This is a, a non-stop process. And the sad thing for me, and um, this is true, I, I stopped covering Scottish politics in uh, late 2015, but it, it was true then enough, and it's still true now, I think, is that the constitutional issue covers up a whole load of problems in Scotland and allows the Scottish government to get away with a whole load of terrible policy record issues. I mean, education has slipped, health outcomes have slipped, the worst drug deaths in Europe, you know, it goes on. And uh, somehow, at some point, you know, Scottish voters and you know, the Scottish political system's got to kind of address these kind of nitty-gritty issues, which are actually... That's, that, that's a very good point, because everything that ever happens in Scotland, anything good ever happens government-wise, it's Holyrood that takes the credit. And anything yeah. bad that ever happens, it's Westminster's fault. There's no proportion, there's no share of the blame. Or it's always good Holyrood, bad Westminster. And that's why well, I think the, if we, the status quo actually weirdly suits both Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. If Nicola keeps asking for a referendum and Boris keeps saying no, in a weird way that suits them both because Boris then ensures there's no referendum, which of course he doesn't want. But Nicola Sturgeon then has got the issue still. She can keep saying these awful Tories in Westminster are denying us our our destiny. And that gives her a really good political capital. Now, obviously it doesn't achieve her stated objective, but as a politician looking to win elections, it allows her to cover over those things that David and Ryan have just pointed out are serious predicaments in, in Scotland. So in a funny way, it's a stronger position for Nicola Sturgeon to be the person constantly on the verge of almost getting what she wants than it is to get it. And it leaves the Labour Party stuck because it's not in that conversation in any meaningful way. 
I mean, the same thing happened really in, in England with the Brexit situation. It was easy to blame everything on Brussels and, and to unite people behind that. And that was very effective. Yeah. I was thinking, I mean, in terms of, of Scotland, that there isn't another major event. Well, of course, there might be another major event if the only resolution to the Irish situation is ultimately a united Ireland, then that's going to, again, bring an, another situation in Scotland to bring this into the forefront of thinking again. Except Northern Ireland hasn't had a referendum on its future. But, but will it, will, will it ever have one? I mean, it's, well, if, it's, if, possible. it's possible because there is actually um, provision for it in the uh, Good Friday Agreement. And the demographics in Northern Ireland are changing. I mean, it's certainly concerning the unionists there. I mean, the question for me is whether Ireland actually wants Northern Ireland. I'm not entirely sure that may be as straightforward as people think, but it's uh, but, but it is a, it is nevertheless a different situation to Scotland, which has which has actually been offered a choice. I mean, in recent years, it could be an issue bubbling under that that mm. does impact on on things like Scotland going forward. Moving back to the UK in general and the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, I mean, how much of a threat to his position is this current situation? And can he solve that by simply shuffling the chairs of, with the uh, shadow cabinet or is there an existential threat to him? Well, I don't see who would replace Keir Starmer in any circumstance. I think one of Labour's biggest problems is that nobody knows who's in the front bench. He's Nobody knows who's in the front benches. You speak to any anybody out in the street, they cannot name three more than two members of the shadow cabinet. So I think that's a massive problem for Labour's credibility. And I do not see anybody that would pose a threat to Starmer. And yeah, I, somebody. I, I, Brian, I, I, I think there may be good people on the shadow cabinet. They may, they may be very good people, but they, in the same way that maybe Keir is having a problem connecting the shadow cabinet members uh, having the same problem. Now, Phil, what do you think? I agree with that. I think that he does need to change the leadership team. I think he does need to bring people through who perhaps have a bit more name recognition. You know, Yvette Cooper, perhaps, Hilary Benn. But whoever he brings through into the shadow camera, I don't think that alone will do it. So I, I don't think you can. It, that will be the panacea. Uh, I also think that it would be really foolish for the Labour Party to think they've got anyone better than Keir Starmer as their leader, because they clearly haven't. And whoever that other person would be, would either be trying again something which has already failed, or would have no clear direction which would be any different from where they're going at the moment. So I think they should try and refrain from panic, try and analyse this in a calm way, um, act to keep changing, because the Labour Party fundamentally has to change in order to win back any popularity. But that's not going to be done by any kind of panic leadership move. Um, it's, it's deeper than that. And I think Keir Starmer is the best option they've got. So I think they should carry on and try and think deeply about what kind of Labour Party might conceivably be popular enough to win at the next general election. Because that's a hell of a difficult question without having no good leader as well. Does it give rise to maybe a, a, a formal tie up with the Lib Dems who have probably lost a lot of their core support because again a lot of the core support for the Lib Dems in in places like the southwest of very strong Brexit areas so they're in a state of flux which we haven't discussed the the Green Party which perhaps have more and more relevance going forward is there a, is there a reason for Labour to say okay look we're, we're going to cast off the the socialist straitjacket we're going to become 
a progressive, liberal-minded centre party involved with environmental issues and things like that. And that's going to be the, the, the kind of alternative government that we're going to put up against the Conservatives. My own view, and I've always held this view, is that conflict between Labour and the Liberal Democrats is ridiculous and serves neither party uh, very well. But the Labour Party psychologically is committed to fighting the Liberal Democrats all the time. I think it's harmful. I think uh, conversations between Labour, Liberal Democrats and the Greens are absolutely imperative. Probably not formal tie-ups, but pretty strong informal tie-ups. I'd certainly be in favour of of um, just running a single candidate in places where one party was best placed to win. I think the conflict between them is actually uh, destructive to all of them in the current electoral system. And so I think we're a long way from getting that kind of cooperation. But if I had a magic wand and I could wave it, that I would certainly ensure that happened, yes. And that might be the only way that we get out of the situation that we could be in right now, which is that we are effectively in a one-party state. Well, the, the right of United there vote very well so that you know the people who are on that side are the another factor we've not mentioned here which is crucial in Hartlepool is that in 2019 the Brexit party won 26 percent of the vote and the Brexit party because it's achieved its aim has disappeared and so that vote then you crystallized around the conservative candidate so if that happens in a number of other seats which it could well do Labour could lose another 12 or 13 seats just to a redistribution of the Brexit party. You could lose 30. It was 30, 30. points, but the Brexit yeah. party actually prevented the Conservatives winning, arguably, but if you added the two votes together. And uh, if, if Hartlepool is a blueprint to what happens to Brexit party votes, then it, you know, you're talking about Yvette Cooper, Ed Miliband, mm. you know, 30 seats across the North and Midlands. Going so, so if you're Boris Johnson right now, are you rubbing your hands and thinking, wow, I've got three and a half years to go of my five-year term, but I could have an election tomorrow and get another five years and, and an even bigger majority. I'd expect an election before the end of the term. I mean, probably 2023, something. You'd, you'd probably wait for the pandemic aftershocks to work their way through and, and we're back into then recovery, you'd hope. And you think at that point, let's go for it. I'd, I'd imagine absolutely he's rubbing his hands together this morning. But what about, never mind the end of 2023, what about October 2021? I'd be surprised because I think he probably wants to do something first. Always in the back of your mind is the risk that you might be throwing it away and it might be hubristic to go too early. But the numbers do look good, I must, must confess. Well, he's certainly enjoying uh, the aftermath of what happened on, on Thursday, that's for sure. I would, I would just say, going back to Labour and uh, the leadership issue, I, I slightly disagree with Phil. I, um, I, don't, I don't see a better alternative leader, but I do think that Starmer has to look at himself as well as his shadow cabinet because he has to up his game. I mean, the problem he has is he's not coming over as a, you know, a, with any kind of charisma at all. And people don't know what he stands for. I mean, in many cases, people don't know even who he is. There was a terrible footage uh, Beth Rigby did in Sky the other day from Hartlepool, you know, asking this woman who that guy was. And it was Keir Starmer. She hadn't got a clue, not even when she was told his name. So, you know, he, he has to look at himself because there will be a challenge to him. The Corbynistas want him out 
um, which Boris must be praying they succeed. But, I mean, um, but you know, there are alternatives, and you know, I do wonder if you know if, if they do move on from Starmer, I think they need to look outside London because the problem they've got is that they're seen as a London party. Mm. Somebody like Andy Bonham or something, somebody yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. The point I'd like to make is that I think there's a problem within the Labour ranks that they cannot believe that people like Boris Johnson, but they don't take any time to understand why people like Boris Johnson. They just complain about people liking him. And I think that's a massive, massive issue, especially in the North of England. Exactly, exactly. You've got to understand your opponent, you've got to understand why your opponent's good. You've got to take your opponent seriously and think and think first why they're successful, not just denigrate them. Obviously, in the end, your job as the opposition is to criticise them and find what's bad about them. But you do that better if you have given real thought to why they're good and why they're succeeding where you're failing. And the Labour Party is very bad at this. And Well, maybe they, they, I, need, they need better campaign strategists working for them. The Tories have had pretty good campaign strategists Work, working on the last lot of, lot of elections, and Labour Party probably haven't. They well, the may need to get their head around that. The Tory Party is very flexible. The Tory Party shifts and changes quickly. And it goes back to what you were saying before, Chris, about socialism. And the Labour Party is sort of weighed down by doctrine. It likes to talk about its values a lot. And I, I don't want to sound like politics should be free of principle. Of course it shouldn't be. Um, but the Labour Party is is fixed into its doctrine and finds it very difficult to change course when things don't work. The Tory party, as you've seen from the shift from George Osborne's austerity to Boris Johnson's cash splurge all over the country, it changes quickly. It finds it relatively easy to become a different beast. And that makes it hard to oppose. It makes it very, very successful politically. Well, there's a reason it's the oldest political party in the world. You know, it, it, it has changed over hundreds of years, literally. Uh, uh, because in the end, it is focused on power and winning power, and that's uh, and that's the big difference with that and with uh, the Conservatives and Labour. And Labour uh, are tied up with uh, the emotional issues and and uh, the socialism uh, straitjacket that it can't manage to get itself out of. Exactly. Thanks for a great chat. I think. Uh, we're certainly living in interesting times and it's been a marvellous conversation. I think we nailed it. Right on the Nail with Chris Wright. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you to my guests, Philip, David and Ryan for a fantastic conversation and thank you to you for tuning in. Tweet us at Right on the Nail with any suggestions or feedback and if you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, rightonthenail.fm. And remember, there's a new episode every Friday. So catch you next time, right on the nail. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.